Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Over the last few months, we've talked to creatives from all over the country, from all walks of life, in multiple creative spaces, including painters, filmmakers, screenwriters, and musicians. We've uncovered their creative journey into the arts through conversations that are not constrained by a stopwatch or by a set list of questions. We come at these conversations from a place of genuine curiosity. As a result, these interviews usually come in at about an hour, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, never rushed and always focused on letting the artist dig deep to help us understand where they came from and what it took to get where they are today. Now it's time to look back on what we've learned. See if there are any through lines, any common denominators, any lessons to glean that can help us understand how these artists found success in their industry. But before we talk about these lessons, I'd like to share a little bit about who I am and how this podcast got started. For the last 20 years, I've worked as a victim's rights attorney. My civil trial practice has taken me all over the country, and about 10 years ago, I started representing survivors of childhood sexual abuse in cases against the Catholic Church. While I never set out to become a lawyer who sues the Catholic Church, this is where my career path led me. And over time, this part of my practice started consuming more and more of my time. And although I've been a lawyer by day, I've always had dreams of becoming a professional musician or a writer or exploring other creative endeavors. I played in a few bands in high school and college, and I still play guitar and piano and write songs. And I toy around with writing screenplays as well. But as the years went by, and my law practice seemed to consume every waking hour, my dreams of doing something creative in my life seemed to be slipping away. And for the last few years, on commutes and during my spare time, I listened to a lot of podcasts. Some of my favorites were Terry Gross on Fresh Air, Ira Glass on This American Life, Mark Marin on WTF, Tim Ferriss, and Brian Koppelman on The Moment. The interviews I really connected to and enjoyed were conversations with creatives, but not short, rushed interviews. I'm talking about long-form conversation where real connections are being made, where a story is being told and being heard. Given that there wasn't a podcast out there that focused exclusively on what I was interested in hearing, I started talking to friends and family about the possibility of starting my own podcast. One of those friends happened to be best friends in high school with a film director named Raika Zaitabshi, who directed a documentary short called Period, End of Sentence. And that lovely friend of mine was gracious enough to connect me with her to be my second guest on Dream Path. Another friend was kind enough to introduce me to Hiba Jamil, the painter, who was my first guest. In September of last year, I spent a couple of days in Santa Monica with one of my best friends from high school. This friend was immensely successful and had actually retired at the age of 40 after basically taking over the world in his industry of manufacturing. Really impressive guy. And I started talking to him about 
the idea of starting a podcast as well. And the concept of interviewing artistic folks and talking about their journey into the arts. And this friend of mine was adamant that I had to start the podcast. In his words, he said, Brian, you have to do this thing. And I will listen and I'll be your biggest fan. A few months after that meeting in Santa Monica with my friend, I attended the Sundance Film Festival. This is something that I go to every few years with my wife. And it's something that I find to be inspiring because it's an event focused on independent filmmakers and supporting their vision and their dream and uh, giving them a venue to show their work. You get to see films that may or may not make it to theaters, may or may not make it to streaming services, uh, but they are a product of hard work and dedication by filmmakers who sacrifice a lot to put their vision out there. And um, when I was at the Sundance Festival this year, um, it really started to come together for me uh, in my mind in terms of what the podcast should look like and sound like and uh, what types of guests we should focus on. And about the same time, I was coordinating an interview with Rika. Uh, because she was actually showing her film at one of the theaters outside of Sundance during the festival. And my wife and I got a chance to see, period, end of sentence, her short film, which was nominated for an Oscar and ultimately won an Oscar for Best Documentary Short. And that uh, once that interview got scheduled, things really started to gain momentum with the podcast. And the more people I talked to about it, the uh, the more they got excited about it and the more they got excited, the more I got excited. It was kind of infectious. And before I knew it, I actually had um, interviews lined up and I had the technology in place and I had the vision and I started to execute on that vision. And uh, the first interview was uh, Hibba Jamil. That's episode two. Episode one is the intro. Um, that led to the interview with Rika Zetabshi. Now, Hibba is the painter from Seattle. Rika is the film director. Episodes five and six were Michael and Roger Fisher, the founding members of the rock band Heart. Episode seven was Gerald Johnson, the bass player from the Steve Miller Band, who played with the Pointer Sisters on the song Fire, who played on the Joker with the Steve Miller Band, and really has had an amazing career in rock and roll and blues. Uh, then we followed up with an interview with B.J. Lederman, who created the iconic NPR theme music, the theme songs that you're familiar with if you've listened to NPR at all over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and then we talked to Alfredo Araguin, a painter from Seattle who has paintings in the Smithsonian Museum. And he has the keys to the city of Morelia, Mexico, and an honor shared uh, only with one other person, the Pope. Uh, we talked to Greg Mariotti, an amazing film producer who actually worked in the banking industry for decades, uh, 20 years before switching careers and becoming a film producer, working with Cameron Crowe and producing the amazing documentary, uh, David Crosby, Remember My Name. And then finally, Bettina Gilois, who is an Emmy-nominated screenwriter. 
She was nominated for an Emmy uh, for writing the screenplay for Bessie, a docudrama about uh, Bessie Smith, a blues singer from the 20s and 30s. She also wrote the screenplay for McFarland USA and a lot of other great projects um, and some exciting stuff that she's working on currently, including a, uh, a series on Muscle Shoals. Well, um, those are the episodes, uh, 10 episodes, 10 guests that we've heard from since uh, April of this year when this podcast got its start. And I'd, I'd like to talk about the lessons that we've learned from these wonderful, artistic, dedicated, passionate people um, and talk about the through lines that uh, we can glean from these episodes. And let's start with Hibba Jamil. What a deep, layered story she has to tell about how she got to America and the the talent that her family saw in her at a young age and nurtured in her and cultivated in her and encouraged. Um, she really had some lovely family members who didn't stamp out that dream when she was young and they encouraged it, in fact. And she, even though got a, a degree in something other than art, I think it was uh, biochemistry or some type of hardcore science, she really made a leap and started painting um, instead of going into working in a laboratory, uh, working at a startup company, she started painting and really becoming successful as a result of her dedication to the craft and painting for hours and hours and hours on end. You know, I think there's a, uh, there's a few books out there that talk about this concept of 10,000 hours. It takes 10,000 hours to become uh, really good and sort of elevated and transcendent in any um, career or activity, uh, whether it be sports or art or just being good at anything. And, and Hibba just threw herself into the craft of painting. And, uh, and learn the craft and learn the art and is still learning, I think, uh, but has really become a force in the Seattle art scene as a result of that passion. And, and then we heard from Rika Saitabji. Um, she is a, a young film director who seems to be ahead of her time. Um, she seems to be a prodigy and her natural storytelling ability is just amazing for someone her age. I mean, 24, 25 years old, and she doesn't seem to have had any self-doubt throughout this process of learning how to shoot a movie, learning how to edit a movie. Um, she just tackled it. And I think the fact that she grew up and went to school in a school district and a community that really appreciated the arts and encouraged that in their students and actually created an environment where high school students could learn the craft of filmmaking in a very supportive environment uh, seems to have been pivotal for her. 
And so, you know, what does that mean for young people that don't have those resources, that don't have that type of support? Well, you know, maybe they can search out that community online. Maybe they can look for people who have that same drive and interest that they do and seek those like-minded people out. Now, Riko seemed to be pretty fortunate to have that type of supportive community around her, but I don't think that that means um, she had an unfair advantage. You know, certainly it was helpful, um, but other people her age, you know, teenagers and people in their their early 20s, I, I think you just need to go find a community of people that have your same values and your same dreams and be supportive of them and they'll be supportive of you. And that's, that's kind of the lesson that I gleaned from talking to Rika and talking about her experience at the arts classes that she attended and the film classes that she got to partake in in high school. So Michael and Roger Fisher, what did we learn from those two episodes? They love each other, clearly, and have immense respect for each other. If you listen to Roger, who is obviously the musical prodigy among the two, and Michael Fisher is is kind of the visionary, you know, the businessman, uh, the the manager, the agent, uh, the person who was uh, the magic man, you know, who Hart wrote a song about called Magic Man. I mean, he was that influential in terms of the band's trajectory back in the early and mid 70s. And so you have this symbiosis between these two brothers that just have nothing but love and respect for each other. And they're helping each other through the time of, of being in heart and, and beyond. And um, their, their time with heart ends uh, kind of suddenly because of um, some issues that, that Roger had with, uh, with Nancy Wilson. Um, Roger gets kicked out of the band and Michael leaves, even, even though he had a relationship with Ann, uh, leaves the band as well shortly after that. And they, they stick together and they make music together um, with Michael continuing to be the visionary and Roger continuing to be uh, part of that vision and a visionary himself, but carrying the load in terms of the, the musical talent. And, um, and they're still making music today. And I saw them, you know, at the Edmonds Performance Center in Edmonds, Washington, uh, for Roger's show where he was playing with the School of Rock kids. Um, he played with his own band. Um, this is a, a rock legend, uh, someone who's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he is still at it after all of these years, after decades, and he loves it. You know, he, he, he has a real passion for what he does. And, and Rika, the same thing, passion for storytelling and story. Um, and Hiba, you know, her, her passion for conceptual art and visual art and painting. And then we talked to Gerald Johnson who was in the Steve Miller band, who opened for Elvis, who played with the Pointer Sisters on uh, the song Fire, 
and um, just had an amazing and still has an amazing career in rock as a bass player. And I, th I think what I, I learned from Gerald was that he organically found the instrument that spoke to him. Um, he picked up a bass and shortly after picking up that bass, he just, he listened and the instrument was speaking to him and he followed through on what he heard, which was that, um, this was his instrument and he wanted to learn how to play it and play it well. And he picked up that instrument and started playing it left-handed upside down. Uh, he did not follow the conventional route of going to take uh, musical lessons where probably a, a bass teacher would have said, no, no, you need to pick that instrument up. And um, if you're going to play it left-handed, you need to play a left-handed bass. Uh, and, and nope, he, he picked it up himself and he learned to play in a completely unique and distinctive way. And he didn't even really think twice about the complexity of doing it that way. And I think he just let his passion for playing in bands and being a part of that scene carry him through uh, to the point where, you know, he he realized at some point that he needed to quit drinking um, and he got clean and sober and had some self-doubt about whether he was good enough to play without drinking, whether he could do it sober. And he almost had to kind of relearn how to perform sober. Uh, but once he did that, he realized that the, the alcohol was actually holding him back from really shining as a musician. And, um, and so he never looked back. He's been, been sober for, for many, many years now, and he's still playing, um, his, his bass and he's still playing in bands and, um, doesn't seem, even though he was, I think probably left out of some of the trajectories that could have made him a superstar, uh, because of maybe not paying attention to the business side of things as much as he, as he should have. You know, you can, you can listen to some of the questions about whether he has any regrets about, um, you know, how he handled the music rights and that type of thing and royalties and the business aspects of, of music. And, and you really don't hear any bitterness or regret in that man's voice. I mean, you really just hear nothing but joy. You know, it's like, would I have done things differently? Should I have? Sure. But, you know, no regrets for Gerald Johnson. You know, just just a real enthusiasm and joy and passion for what he does, which is music and playing bass and songwriting. Um, and then we talked to, to B.J. Lederman. Um, you know, th this is a, a, a legend when it comes to the theme music that he wrote for NPR, Morning Edition, uh, Weekend Edition, Car Talk, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, um, all of these iconic shows on NPR. And, you know, if you're not an NPR fan, listen to the episode anyway, because it, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if you know any of his music. This, this is a 
charismatic, very unique guy um, who has spent his whole life playing music and writing songs and writing jingles. And um, how many times have you talked to anybody who who wrote jingles for a living, who actually sells a jingle to a corporation that's trying to market a product? Um, and this is how he made his living for many years. And, um, you know, he, he, he just marches <laughs> to the beat of his own drummer. And, um, you know, with this, this episode, we start walking through the woods of Asheville, North Carolina on a hike and, um, trying to scare bears away <laughs> as we're walking through these, uh, these hills of, of North Carolina. And then we, we end the interview um, sitting at a grand piano with BJ playing some songs for us and just talking about his career and what it means to him and um, talking about how he has lost some of his memory over the years due to Lyme disease. And um, I ask him what advice he has for young artistic folks who aspire to work in the arts and, um, you know, his advice is pretty broad, uh, in terms of what to learn, you know, what to seek out. And basically he says, just read books, you know, go out there and, and, um, and read as many books as you can. It'll, it'll make you a better person. And I, I think if you broaden your world through books, according to BJ, um, you broaden your understanding of what's possible in the world. And, um, and that, that was a pretty special conversation with BJ. Um, Alfredo, oh my goodness, Alfredo Ereguin, what a special man. Uh, he's, he's in his 80s and he has been painting these, um, I, I, I think I referred to them as pointless um, paintings. I don't think that's, that's really an accurate description and I'm not um, well-versed in, in um, the art world and painting to be able to describe them and, and do them justice. But go online and check out his work at alfredoatagin.com and, and Google him and just see what he has given to the world, you know, the, the gifts that he has given to the world and to the Smithsonian and um, how he has been recognized by his, his colleagues and peers and um, by the city of Moralia, where he was born, for his his gifts, his story was just amazing to hear how he was kicked out of his biological father's home and uh, made his way to the United States and forged a life in a circle of friends in the Pacific Northwest that turned out to be some of the most iconic writers of that generation, including Ray Carver and Tess Gallagher. Um, he just found a posse, a, a community of people in Seattle that all seemed to be incredibly successful and they all seemed to inspire each other to achieve greatness in their field, whatever that field was. And they all supported each other. And, and I think, you know, this kind of goes back to the, the Rika Zetabshi interview where, you know, what I gathered from, 
from her experience is that you know the, the importance of community, the importance of like-minded people who want to make art just like you, but they also want to help you make art and they, they are supportive. And that's, you know, that's what Alfredo found in Seattle. Greg Mariotti, uh, Greg was a, a banker for 20 years and on the side, he starts a blog, starts a website, kind of a fan site to honor Cameron Crowe, you know, one of his favorite uh, filmmakers and does this so well that the word gets out to Cameron that there's this website that somebody created about him and his movies and his career. And so Cameron reach, reaches out to Greg and this relationship is formed. And over time, that relationship gets closer and stronger to the point where Cameron actually trusts Greg to bring him on board at his film company, Vinyl Films. And then uh, Greg is faced with a crossroads in his life. He's offered a job to uh, work in the film industry, which is something that he would love to do. But that means he has to leave banking. He has to leave the security of that career, something he knows how to do well and knows how to make money at and, um, and then jump to a completely different career with a lot of uncertainty. And, um, and he did it. And look where he's at. Um, he, he's four years into it. And he has put out a documentary, which I was um, fortunate to see at the Seattle International Film Festival called David Crosby, Remember My Name. This is a very special film. And um, the, the vulnerability that it portrays in a rock star like David Crosby in the sunset of his life is uh, is just something that is stunning to see on film and i i highly recommend that you see it um but you know what i learned from greg's talk and his story and his journey is that it is never too late to chase your dreams to follow your passion and that's probably the most inspiring message a guy like me can hear you know out of all all 10 interviews, even though they were all wonderful, um, the interview with Greg, for me, I connected with, I think, the most because of that lesson, which is chase your passion. Go out there and do what you want to do, but also keep your ear to the ground and be on the lookout for opportunities. Listen, observe, and be ready to seize opportunities. Bettina Gillois. What did we learn talking to Bettina? Well, Bettina is one of the hardest working screenwriters in Hollywood. I'm convinced of it. Um, she is constantly focused on either writing the next project or teaching students at Chapman University about story logic and screenwriting and television writing. And she is a perfectionist. Um, she has, She told us that it is important that you submit something that you're proud of, that is good or excellent, that if you submit something just because you finished it and you're just glad to be done, but it's mediocre or average, that that mediocre or average work product 
will define you in the industry. You won't make it very long if you turn in scripts like that. And um, she talked about the story logic of chasing something too hard, because if you chase something, the, the story logic of chasing something is that it will run away. And if you run away from something, the story logic is that it will chase you. And it's that type of understanding of the universal human story that allows her to tell other people's stories and put them on screen so well in a dramatic way. Uh, we, we talked about dialogue and the importance of making sure that dialogue in movies is not necessarily realistic because realistic dialogue is boring. Uh, we, we talked about the importance of writing interesting dialogue. And even if that means that it's not going to sound realistic. And, and we look to the examples of like David Mamet or Aaron Sorkin for dialogue that clearly is not the way normal people talk, but the way normal people talk, according to Bettina, and I, I agree with her after hearing this point, can be boring. And that's the last thing you want to do as a screenwriter or a filmmaker. You want to captivate your audience and keep them engaged. And, um, you know, Bettina, that conversation with Bettina was um, a lot of fun because she's just a natural storyteller. And you can tell that um, she's immensely talented at so many things in life, but she chose filmmaking and screenwriting um, to be her primary artistic outlet and uh, even though she's a musician and she's a you know has all kinds of talents um in the arts she has really made an impact in the film industry with um some great movies including mcfarland usa and bessie and glory road and this muscle shoals project that's going to be coming out soon produced by johnny depp what what a privilege and and pleasure it was to talk to Bettina. So that's my take on what we've learned so far on the Dream Path podcast. What a blast it was to talk to so many talented creatives in depth about their journey into the arts. If you want to share your own takeaways from these interviews, email me at brian at dreampathpod.com. That's Brian with a Y. Or you can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram with the handle at dreampathpod. I'd love to hear from you, and I really hope you stay tuned in for future interviews. We have a lot of compelling guests in store. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time, and as always, go find your dream path.